This episode is brought to you by Fully Gemstones. Fabergé somehow has become entwined with the history of the Romanovs. The glamour and the power and the fairy tale aspect of this sort of Hollywood family. The beautiful, beautiful daughters and then you know, a beautiful son and the tragedy and so on. Rasputin and haemophilia and an ultimate murder and revolution. This sort of intoxicating story, Fabergé has become part of it. You can certainly associate Fabergé in Russia with the imperial family and I think you can conversely do the same here. That the, the the British Royal Collection is an amazing survival. And of course, when you look elsewhere, the, the French royal jewels have gone, the Russian royal jewels, the Italians, wherever else you go, they've gone. But here, they've remained in the same hands. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. We're here today to talk about the great Russian master jeweller and goldsmith, Peter Carl Fabergé. It's a story of romance, royalty and revolution. You will have certainly heard of him. X might come to mind, but you might not know why or what he achieved in his lifetime and why his legacy means we're still talking about him, as we will be doing so today. And there's no one better to talk about Fabergé with than Kieran McCarthy the author of a book, Fabergé in London, which has formed the basis of a new exhibition which he has co-curated at London's Victoria and Albert Museum. Kieran, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Well, in fact, I'm joining you. <laughs> I'm in Wartsky in London in St James's, surrounded by Fabergé. Well, thank you for inviting me, Kieran. You're welcome, Carol. It's a pleasure to have you here. And we are going to talk about Peter Carl Fabergé this morning. I wanted, first of all, Kieran, that there are so many great jewellers and goldsmiths, but in the pantheon of the greats, where does he stand in your opinion? Pretty close to the top. I think everybody is compared to Fabergé. Fabergé is the ideal, the the great jeweller, which um, I think everybody strives to be like. I think there are other great jewellers. You know, Cartier were supreme in their efforts. Lalique was an imagination beyond compare. But Fabergé has a mystique. It has a sort of prestige, which I think perhaps eclipses them all. Because people have heard of his eggs. People probably equate Fabergé with eggs, but he was so much more than that. And what is it about his work that you felt is so outstanding? Well, the eggs, you're quite right, are a very small part of his work. And I think in the public imagination, if you say Fabergé, the next word on everybody's lips is eggs. But it was a tiny part of the business. Only 50 of those were delivered out of the tens of thousands of objects. I think the character of his works, and the character is sort of multi-layered. It's in particular, I think the meticulous craftsmanship, the ability to manipulate his materials, 
And this was an age where the manipulation of materials, the transformation of a rock or a stone or a gem into something else was prized by the, the audience, his audience. And Fabergé was able to do that incredibly well. He was able to work the materials, choose the materials, and then absolutely perfectly represent his end target in them, whether it be a frame, a box, a, a fantasy object. It's that meticulous craftsmanship and understanding of his materials. So how did he start? We only know this, um, one of the great and um, one of the horrors of Fabergé research is, is that the man himself is largely unknown to us. You know, he was not a, although he was incredibly famous, he did not seek publicity. There was only one ever interview which he um, gave in 1914, which was incredibly late in his career. So we know about him from accounts of others. And he was born in St. Petersburg to Gustave Fabergé, who was also a jeweller. And Gustave had established a very mundane, pretty much, I don't wish to condemn it too much, but a very sort of run-of-the-mill jewellery workshop and retail shop in St. Petersburg. And Carl was born into this family. But I think Carl had a genius, and Kenneth Snowman, the great scholar of, um, of Fabergé, described it as a restless imagination. He was a restless imagination on the edge of Europe. And I think it's from Carl that the success stems. He was, again, it was that ability to understand the materials, to manipulate them, work them, and later on to bring together a community of craftspeople, both men and women, to um, orchestrate the production of his material, of his pieces. So I think it's him. He's the, the genius of it. He's the the brilliance. It's a, a, somebody comes along who is wonderful. He comes along once in a generation, if that, and Carl Fabergé was that man. So he was deciding on the materials and the designs, and then he was giving it out to these sort of 400 so goldsmiths and craftspeople in his workshops. Yes, yeah. Fabergé, the, um, the thing to understand about the structure of his business is that although a trained goldsmith, I, we didn't mention that earlier, as a younger man he was sent on a tour of Europe in which he immersed himself in the history of goldsmithing and trained himself to become one. But in St. Petersburg, he never produced the pieces. They were devolved, responsibility to produce them was devolved onto specialist workshops, which he arranged and were then um, tied, tied to him, contracted to him. And so Carl Fabergé was involved in the designs, but I think he was also involved in the whole process from organising, understanding the patrons. And I think we must also see that as a key part of his role, that he was able to capture the zeitgeist of St. Petersburg at this time, those last days of empire, where there was such a fascination and such a appetite for whimsy and for luxury and for refinement. And so he was able to sort of recognise that demand and that spirit of the age and then transmute it into his work. So Yes, he didn't produce anything, but he did oversee the designs and the structure of the business. So, in essence, his workshop, I think I've heard you say before, was the largest workshop in history and would never be able to be recreated. It's not a singular workshop. I think mm -hmm. the business had over 500 employees at its height, which is a mammoth enterprise, and but that's incorporating all the different components of it. But what he was able to do by having the resources and the success 
was again to bring that community of craftspeople together and I think where the, the the sort of the skill and the ability to produce an object let's pick one say a Fabergé flower study there are many talents that are involved in this there's the mounter the enamel of the gem setter the gem cutter the polisher there's the designer so we'll just describe these quickly for anyone who hasn't seen one because there's a great joy waiting if they haven't actually seen one these are the most delicate beautifully wrought botanical studies in a carved rock crystal vase yes fabergé produced as you've just described there these beautiful highly naturalistic um, studies of flowers and they're almost like alchemy in reverse it's taking unyielding metals and sort of hard stones and then just warping them into this little moment of nature so it's as though a grand duchess has walked out of her palace into the garden picked a, a pansy and then put it into a glass of water and Fabergé was able to recreate that using gold silver enamels but the the process in creating that, the, the end product is so beautiful, you can almost not detect the human hand in the creation of it. But that belies the number of hands, the number of skills required to produce it. So again, there's the, the enameler, the mounter, the polisher, the gem setter, and on and on and on. And Fabergé, from the size of his business and his ability to understand the dynamics between the craftspeople, within his his workshops was able to bring these people together so that the enameler could speak across the table to the mounter the mounter could speak across the table to the designer to the gem setter and in that dynamic between craftspeople came produced these exquisite works of art and they were attracted to fabergé because he had these clients to make these exquisite objects. So they kind of flocked to him, is that right? Absolutely. I think if you were in Russia, not just Russia, if you were in Northern Europe and even Western Europe, and you were a great craftsman, the ultimate place to go, the only place to go was Fabergé. And there are stories of lapidaries walking from Ekaterinburg in sandals through the snow to get to St. Petersburg to be ha- to attain the opportunity to work in the workshops. And I want to touch a moment on the enamelling because this is something else that Fabergé did that was kind of unique, wasn't it? Yes, well, Bainbridge, Henry Bainbridge, who was Fabergé's London agent, um, his ambassador to the world, described Fabergé's workshops as laboratories of enamelling. And they were, I think there was such, when you look at an object, I think it's perhaps the first thing you would recognise in the majority of them is the exquisite quality of the enamel. But again, to create those enamels is an incredibly difficult process. And the Fabergé had a specialist workshop, which was staffed by, again, a father and a son, the, the Petrovs. And they were dedicated to sort of solving the challenges and overcoming the complexities of enamelling required to produce the objects Fabergé did. And he created in more colours than anyone has ever created. Yeah, I maybe somewhere, somewhere did it. But there are, in the exhibition we've been, um, which I think we will perhaps speak about a little bit later, but in the exhibition which is coming at the V&A, we actually have the enamel sample panel produced by Fabergé. And I think there's 144 different colours of enamel. And gorgeous pinks and lilacs and soft greens. Oh, it, it, it's the complete um, rainbow of colours. But there is, as you say there, there is a, a sort of focus on the pastel, which I think it is also characteristic of Fabergé's work. There's a lightness to it, a gentleness to the, the tones of the enamel. And of course, 
where you see this, and we've got to understand where these objects were made, is when you walk through the streets of St. Petersburg, the plaster of the palaces is light blue, is pale pink, is a sort of tone of eau de mille. And so Fabergé was recreating the fabric of St. Petersburg in enamels, and you do get the wonderfully beautiful array of colours. So he was immersed in this, as you say, last days of empire in St. Petersburg, creating things that really the indolent, rich and aristocracy um, felt they needed. Can you describe some of those pieces that he was making? Absolutely, you are. You're you're absolutely right here. I think we've got to recognise that Fabergé was punitively expensive and it was incredibly exclusive. And so it was only a very thin layer of society that was able to partake in this joy. And in Russia in particular, it was perhaps a symptom of what was going wrong, that you know, ev- you could ignore the, the stretches of sort of almost empty land, the poverty, the deprivation that existed in the countryside, and become absolutely intoxicated by the little bend of enamel in a Fabergé flower, and they were. Um, but Fabergé one of the, again, for the exhibition, one of the great joys of it is just sort of showing how Fabergé understood and related to the lifestyles of these clients, which were incredibly luxurious, of course. And one of the pieces we have is a Fabergé bell push, which is made of wood, so wood is quite subtle, you'd expect, but it's um, a bell push that works by you, a mechanical one. You wind it up, so you imagine a, a sort of cylinder of wood mounted in silver with a dome on top, with a moonstone push, and then a, a mechanism by when you twist it around, it winds it up and you press the bell and it rings. And this is quite an unusual object because you know, why would you have a mechanical bell push? Most bell pushes operate in houses. And of course, you press a press a bell, push a bell, ring somewhere, and a servant comes running. Well, whenever I press, sad, one. I haven't got one of those yeah, in my I house. Know, <laughs> I say, whenever I press it, nobody comes. But um, but you know, and that's well, well just weird. There, there's lots of levels to this story. But I think the other thing about a Fabergé bell push is that it's perhaps the ultimate status symbol because you shopped at Fabergé, which was pretty exclusive. Um, you had servants to come, and some of them had multiple bell pushes. You could have three or four, so you had three or four different servants to come. But then also your house was electrified, which in St. Petersburg at this time, it was more and more common, but it was still quite a sort of an advancement. You know, I don't know what the modern equivalent is, probably having a sort of Amazon Echo house where your door opens as you walk to it, but it was a modern phenomenon. So the mechanical bell push is even more peculiar, because why have a mechanical bell push? And we finally, uh, it wasn't me, it was um, James Hurt, who's um, a researcher in America, found a picture of this bell push. And it was a picture of this bell push with the Tsarina, Alexander Fedorovna of Russia, eating outside with it. And so it turns out that this Fabergé bell push is the Tsarina's picnic bell push. It's the bell push she used when she was dining al fresco. So Fabergé recognised that the Tsarina just might need a bell push when she's sitting on a blanket outside Sazegzelo, having a picnic and wants to call a servant. And so he made the bell push for it. And it's that sort of that little piercing into the lives and into the needs of this clientele that was one of Fabergé's great successes. And what else? There were um, ink stands, endless, because oh. photography was just starting, oh. endless photo frames. Endless photograph frames. But the photograph frames were, were exquisite and they were, 
you're often surrounded by laurels or sort of starburst enamels, which are then sort of creating the idea that you're the center of the star, that the light's emitting from you. The laurels are the triumph of the love of the giver to the to whoever is in the frame. But it was everything. They even produced um, tiny little former mint holders which are tablet holders, but of course formaments in the, um, particularly in the Edwardian era here in England, were laced with cocaine. And so, you know, if you were feeling tired after one weekend house party too many, you could take a little formament, it would sort of give you a little spark of fresh, you know, breath in your mouth, a minty taste in your mouth, but it would also send opiates into your bloodstream. And so Fabergé made those. There are even accounts of, um, somebody told me a story the other day of Graf making a tiara for a dog. And so for one of his customers' dogs, he made a diamond set tiara. And so I thought, yeah, that is, that's maybe getting up there. But Fabergé also made little jeweled enameled bells for his um, customers' dogs' collars. So it was, they produced a panoply of objects from those with immediate functions, bell pushes, framed boxes, stamp dampeners, glue pots, you know, every little accoutrement, clocks and so on, accoutrements of life. But then they also produced objects of fantasy. They produced flower studies and they produced hardstone portrait figures and um, animal studies. So it's... And the old tiara. Oh, tiaras. <laughs> oh, jewellery, yes. No, jewellery isn't... We, well, maybe we can speak about that as well, but jewellery... Fabergé did make the most incredible jewellery and the most fabulously lavish, you know, heavily endowed with gems. Were but they all Russian gems, um, Siberian, largely, largely, amethysts? Yes, amethysts and, um, well, really everything. They, they did use gems from elsewhere. Of course, there were no diamonds in Russia at this time. But in one of Fabergé's philosophies was to celebrate Russian materials. And so in hardstones, they are Russian. But you then also, as you've just mentioned, find the most superb, actually seawater-like, or sort of Caribbean seawater-like aquamarines. And then the deepest, richest, black current red amethysts, which are from Russia. And again, in the exhibition, we have one of these tiaras that survived, and it is mounted with aquamarines. Now, I'll just describe it. You have to come to the exhibition to see it. You, I will never get anywhere near to achieving a description of it that merits the jewel. But it's, um, if you imagine, it's a diamond, a series of diamond set arrows pointing vertically downwards. And then on the tops of the arrows, the flights of the arrows are Siberian pear-shaped aquamarines. And it is sublime, it's exquisite. The mounting, the refinement of the setting, the actual structural, well, the, 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 the design, the, the ability to bring the metals together in that way is beyond compare. And so you have all of that mastery of the, um, of the production of the tiara. But then again, it's the layering of it. It's understanding how it was being worn, who was wearing it and why they were wearing it. And the tiara, of course, the arrows are representations of Cupid. There are tributes of Cupid. So whoever gave this tiara, tiara and it was belonged to um, the Duchess of uh, Mecklenburg-Schwerin, um, was giving her Cupid's arrows in, in Siberian aquamarines so that they could be fired into her mind. So they were firing aquamarine love arrows into her head as she wore it. And it is 
towering. It's like a skyscraper of a tiara. And we are very fortunate to have it in the exhibition. And very romantic. Incredibly romantic. And I think that's the other thing which I think we've, we've got to touch upon when we talk about Fabergé, is that nobody bought it, well, very few bought it for themselves. They bought it to give to others. And so, you know, when I was madly and deeply in love with you, Carol, I would have given you a Fabergé tiara and it would have been how I communicate that love to you. If I had a friend, you know, and how I communicate my friendship to him would be by giving him an object by Fabergé. And in that exchange of Fabergé objects, we see the objects, but then we also see the relationships and society behind them because these were a social currency. They weren't just works of art. I loved it in your book, um, Fabergé in London, where you quote Vita Sackville West, who said a Fabergé gift, talking about this sort of this personal aspect, she said it meant a relationship was in danger of becoming serious because she equated it with receiving something very personal like lingerie. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, if you were to receive something by Fabergé, you would acknowledge it. Fabergé's work, although it is expensive, it does involve you know precious materials, there is a restraint to it. There's a sort of gentility to it. There's almost a sort of separation from the intrinsic value of the materials to the beauty of the artistic object that's being produced from them. And in giving this, I'm giving you the beautiful artistic object, not necessarily the gold and the diamonds and the enamels. And I think in that, you have the most exquisite gift world and gift ability in Fabergé. And that's what the clientele we're using it for. I think we can view Fabergé as perhaps the greatest gift shop of, of, of ever, perhaps. So there he is in Russia. He's an astute businessman. He puts himself in front of the people who matter the tastemakers, the imperial family. And of course, through that, he becomes very entwined with the British royal family. Yes, well, I think we've got to sort of recognise that in Russia at this time, the imperial family and the court were obviously at the centre of society. So the fashions at court, the obsessions of the imperial family quickly um, were contagious. They went all the way through society. If the Tsar and the Tsarina admired Fabergé's work, then others would admire it. And it grew and it grew and it grew. And by about 1900, Fabergé had pretty much conquered Russia. He was the preeminent goldsmith. He was the first choice of the imperial family. His businesses were flying. His workshops were established and producing the most incredible supply of objects. And he began to sort of just think, not, I think not quite aggressively, but he just began to sort of compare himself internationally with everybody else, you know. And I think he wanted to compete with the the greatest of the world. They began to sort of recognise that there was an audience beyond the, the borders of the Russian Empire that had a fascination with his work. And they then thought, well, where could we establish a branch? And as you referred to earlier, the where they decided on was London. And one of the reasons for this was the relationship, which we, we've mentioned just now, between the Russian imperial family and the British royal family. And I think we've got to sort of understand this um, because it's key in understanding the the development of Fabergé's business internationally that um, Queen Alexandra of England, the wife of Edward VII, 
was the sister of Maria Fedorovna, the, the Tsarina and later Dowager Tsarina of Russia. So she was therefore the aunt of Nicholas II, whilst Edward VII was the uncle of Alexander Fedorovna, the Tsarina. So they shared the same DNA. And it was from the Russian imperial family's fascination with Fabergé, it was communicated to the British royal family. And became quite competitive because... In your book, Fabergé, and you quote Empress Maria, when he was opening his only store outside Russia in London, there was a frosty reception from her saying, now that that silly Fabergé has opened his shop in London, you have everything and I can't send you anything new, so I am furious. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the sisters, um, the Dowager Tsarina by this stage, and Marie Fedorovna and Queen Alexandra, were exchanging Fabergé gifts. And of course, when you're selling a gift, you want it to surprise, you want it to delight. And of course, when the shop opened in London, Queen Alexandra could walk, you know, just up from the palace into Fabergé and all of the delight and wonder was there in front of her. So the Tsarina was denied that opportunity of of having sole ownership of the Fabergé presents that they exchanged. And so now he hit upon another cosmopolitan city in the midst of a sort of golden era of social world of balls, weekend house parties, just pleasure. Absolutely. I think this is, um, yeah, Fabergé coming to London was perhaps influenced by the royal connection. Because again, in, in London, society and fashion was quite feudal as well. If the king and queen liked it, it was the rest of court would like it and society would follow. But in coming to London, he was also, as you've just sort of mentioned, coming to a city. It was at the centre of an empire, you know, right or wrong, where the wealth of that empire was flowing in and settling onto the streets of London. It was cultured, it was cosmopolitan, it was very international. And there was um, a passion for the arts and for goldsmith's work and jewellery. And the other way that it's often described as well is that it's a sort of a liberation that after what you can't necessarily take this too far that there is a sort of concept and a a study that queen victoria's reign in the later years was very sort of mundane and slightly dark and joyless but then when the queen passed away and edward the seventh who was a very gregarious um, pleasure seeker became king that there was a joy that there was a release where people could indulge themselves and they did really, they did. There was a great sort of you know, luxurious and almost conspicuous consumption in the Edwardian era. And it drew Cartier to London, it drew Lacloche to London, it drew other jewellers to the city. And Fabergé was one of those that came here to cater to that you know, wealthy, powerful clientele that naturally congregated in London. And there were successive royal shopping expeditions, weren't they? I mean, I think when um, Queen Alexandra and King Edward went out, they would bring the King of Denmark or the Queen of Greece or, you know, any number of royal visitors. Um, And, of course, Edward VII was a great smoker. There were lots of smoking accessories. Um, What were they buying mostly, Kieran? Well, it it did vary. It did. And I think you're quite right in the the clientele it had was just, you know, of the highest possible level. And Bainbridge, again, sort of brilliantly, Bainbridge wrote a biography of Fabergé. 
and he presents it beautifully. It's very anecdotal, and it just gives these little glimpses into the life, and it's the glimpses by the most simple um, sort of observations. And what he described is that when some when somebody knocked at the door, you didn't know whether it was the postman or the Empress Eugenie. You know, it could be anyone, and they were visiting. But um, they had, I think, sort of different tastes. You can, by studying the the number, the type, and also the evolution of purchases from Fabergé, you can determine the um, the patron's tastes within it. So some did go for the very flamboyant items, but Queen Alexandra, who we mentioned just then, had a particularly refined taste. She admired the lapidary works and almost the more restrained and creative and artistic they were, the more she liked them. And so the animal studies and the flowers were particular favourites. And I think um, in the Royal Collection, there are more flower studies than anywhere else in the world. Yeah, there? There, there are. Now, don't sort of hang me if I get this wrong, but I think there's 27 in the Royal Collection, which is the largest number anywhere. Because it has been really a family pastime. I think each successive generation, up until Her Majesty now has still collected Fabergé, the Duke of Edinburgh had quite a few pieces, didn't he, that he either inherited or was given. Yeah, I mean, there is a family tradition and it does go on. I think there is, it's almost like in Russia that Maybe to a, it's a different character here, but in Russia, Fabergé somehow has become entwined with the history of the Romanovs. So all of the the glamour and the power and the fairy tale aspect of this sort of Hollywood family, the beautiful, beautiful daughters, and then you know a beautiful son and the tragedy and so on. Um, you know, Rasputin and Haemophilia and an ultimate murder and revolution. You know, this sort of intoxicating story. Fabergé has become part of it. Um, so you can how much we should do it is a different question, but you can certainly associate Fabergé in Russia with the imperial family. And I think you can conversely do the same here, that the, the British Royal Collection is an amazing survival. And of course, when you look elsewhere, the, the French royal jewels have gone, the Russian royal jewels, the Italians, wherever else you go, they've gone. But here, they've remained in the same hands. And that's invaluable because you can then, well, one, you can trace the provenance all the way back. But in that story, you're able just to eke out those little details, you know, that you can study the, the series of hardstones the Queen, Queen Alexandra acquired. And it's, um, it's brilliant and wonderful and a, a, a superb achievement that these pieces in the Royal Collection, which are fabulous and are wonderful, but they're in the same hands as the people who originally bought them. And they're about, I think the collection's about 800 pieces. Yeah. And Her Majesty is the largest lender to your exhibition. Yes, she is, yeah, which mm. we are sort of deeply honoured um, for. It's incredibly generous of her, but also the staff at the Royal Collection. And I think mm. we should reference that Caroline de Guita has been studying the Royal Collection you know, beautifully. There's some sort of exquisite discoveries she's made. And I think there is a project, um, you know, at some time in the near future to create a catalogue resume um, covering all the pieces you mentioned. I think it's, she's in the process. I think it's like a 10-year project. Yeah, oh, God. <laughs> it's, it's a Herculean effort mm. to, um, you know, to examine and explore you know, all of the nuances of the collection. And she's doing it brilliantly. And so most royal residences, you know, the tabletops, desktops were just littered 
with pieces by Fabergé, all kinds of things. And then Queen Alexandra would bring them into the white drawing room at Sandringham and light up cabinets full of her carved hardstone animals. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've got to sort of look at it in that light as well. If the great um, sort of photography and um, paintings of Edwardian interiors does show a sort of plethora of objects. If you were to have a, a mantelpiece or a desk or a shelf, every square inch of it would be covered with something. There was such a wealth of objects and there was a desire to show them. And I think particularly for Fabergé, which was so prized and understood in this world, that you did want to show it. And if, if you and I were at a country house party, you know, there's no television, there's no radio, Netflix doesn't exist, you know, we can talk to each other wonderfully all evening long, but then when you just sort of settle down and we are admiring a Fabergé flower study together, it's again, it's that little sort of social interaction and currency that these objects created. And I think in the Royal Collection and in Queen Alexandra's use of it, it is that. It's a sort of a social a social phenomenon that coalesces around the Fabergé objects. And didn't they do studies of all their farmyard animals at Sandringham? Yeah, well, that's the Sandringham Commission, which mm. is perhaps Fabergé in London's greatest sort of triumph. And the Sandringham Commission, um, the Sandringham Estate in Norfolk, was the Queen Alexandra's and King Edward's favourite residence. And I think they particularly liked escaping there because it just sort of took all the pressures of royal life off their shoulders. They could go there and in effect be a sort of English squire and lady, you know, living in a country house, which is, I think, where a lot of their pleasure came from. And so Edward VII, whilst Prince of Wales, bought Sandringham and they then made it their their home, their country home. And part of their activity here, as is so typical in sort of landed estates, was the raising of, of farmyard animals, a sort of model farm. And so they, Henry, sorry, Edward VII, um, established herds of cattle representing Irish, Scottish, Welsh and British um, breeds. They raised pigs and ducks, they bred chickens, they had endless dogs, it was sort of kennels as far as you could see. They established a shire horse stud, they established a racehorse stud there. And it was a particular fascination for the royal, for King Edward and Queen Alexandra, the royal couple. And so Fabergé, in a moment of brilliance, actually Henry Bainbridge, in a moment of brilliance, sort of understood that Queen Alexandra was fascinated by animal hardstone studies, which are portraits of animals, miniature ones, you know, usually sort of four to five centimetres high, carved from Siberian hardstones, mounted with jeweled eyes and gold legs. The Queen admired these studies, but then she also really you know, spent her spare time breeding turkeys at Sandringham. And so the by combining the two, you know, having one of the Queen's turkeys at Sandringham represented in the hardstone studies that she admired made the perfect object for the Queen. And so the Sandringham Commission arose in which Fabergé sent a sculptor called Boris Freudman Clusel from St. Petersburg via London to Sandringham to model the animals that the King and Queen kept there. They were then these models which were produced in wax. So if you, in effect, sculptures, these have no purpose 
other than to delight. They have, you know, they're not a box, they're not a frame, they don't do anything other than delight. So these are works of art, they're purely sculptures. And these were sent back to St. Petersburg, the wax prototypes, where they were carved in Siberian hardstones, returned to London for the king and queen to buy for each other or for the or for their circle to buy for the king and queen. And this is the Sandringham Commission. And I think we have I think we have every known example of animal from Central Commission that exists um, in the exhibition that's coming up. And then they went into wild animals too, didn't they? I oh. mean, they, it wasn't just farmyard, it was oh. kangaroos. They and... went around the world. <laughs> yeah. There's a great zoological element to mm. it as well. You know, that sort of natural history mindset that here's an exotic um, anteater from Central America and Fabergé represented it. And so, yes, I think the Sandringham animal is quintessentially British. And another little just layer to this story is, is that we often sort of view Fabergé as Russian, and it is Russian, it is quintessentially Russian. But here, the opening of the branch in London is, is one part of it. But beyond that, here we have Britain influencing the objects that are being produced in St. Petersburg and directly influencing them. So they are, in effect, British works of art being produced in St. Petersburg for Britain and sold in Britain. So it morphs gently into an Anglo-Russian phenomenon. And I guess there was a downside to all this gift-giving, that if you couldn't keep up, not with the Joneses, but with the royal family, you were not going to get invited. Well, you quote someone, um, Lady Allington, at her Christmas parties. What was that? Well, Lady Allington had a Christmas party. I can't remember. I think it's one of the Keppel daughters. It could be Sonia. Um, who mentions it in her memoirs and she says that um, Lady Allington would hold a Christmas party but it was expected at this Christmas party that you would exchange Fabergé gifts because it was the raging fashion. Now you could potentially um, go out and afford to buy a Fabergé gift but if you couldn't, you wouldn't have one. And so the other thing that happened, you know, whenever... So there might be 30 people at the party. Oh, there could be 30 people. And so you'd have to buy 30 Fabergé gifts to give to them. And then you'd probably have to buy one or two more Fabergé gifts to give to members of the household, you know, to the staff that had been looking after you for the weekend. And so the, the expense was immense. And she, um, I think it's the... the a Keppel daughter, talks about um, how those that couldn't afford it had to turn down the invitations, but then others were slightly more cammy and then would recycle the Fabergé gifts they received (laughs) and supply them on. Recycling, very good thing to do. Recycling Fabergé. Um, And Henry Bainbridge was very helpful in this, wasn't he? Because he would note down people's likes and dislikes and pursuits to help prospective buyers. Oh, absolutely. I think... Bainbridge, who was the the manager of the shop, was quite a sort of, had a subtle ability to sort of observe and understand the demands and the perils of society life in Edwardian London. And so he himself navigated through them, but then he also sort of held the hands of others and navigated them through this system, because giving gifts is... It can be a disaster. If you get it wrong, you know, it's terrible. You, you, you're compromising them. It's not they don't like it. They, they feel obliged to you afterwards. You know, there are all these little sort of subtleties and peculiarities in gift giving. And, but Bainbridge sort of 
was able by, as you sort of described, he would know what his customers' favourite colours were, you know, the houses they lived in, their pastimes, whether it's horse racing, whether it's raising cows or turkeys. You know, they would, he would know everything about them and make it his job to know everything about them so that he was able to, one, direct Fabergé to produce the objects for this audience, but then within that audience, he'd be able to sort of say to you, well, Carol, well, your best friend absolutely, I know, loves, you know, Kern Terriers or Beddington Terriers, and look, and here's a Fabergé Beddington Terrier, why don't you give that? And then, there you go, and Bainbridge would know that Lord so-and-so or Lady so-and-so or Mr. so-and-so loved Beddington Terriers, and through that, he was able to allow you to give a Beddington Terrier to them, and it's just that entry into society, that observation of it. And so, again, Fabergé becomes about the objects, but it becomes a social history of that world and of that clientele. So recently on If Jules Could Talk, we unpicked the culture and the meaning of snakes and jewels and snakes in culture. And you've got a fantastic example of a snake, don't you, in the exhibition? We do, we do. We have a cigarette case and it's blue enamel, royal blue guilloche enamel. So if you imagine it's like a sort of shimmering silk of enamel covering a gold case. And this gold case is then encircled by a diamond set snake. And there's a brilliant thing in this snake as well. So the diamond set snake is is surrounding it and it's grasping its own tail. What Fabergé has done in the snake, it, it absolutely scintillates whilst you look at it. And the way that he's achieved it is by producing setting diamonds of different sizes within the body of it. So it's like a pave set, but with different sized diamonds. And so as you look at it, your eye can't quite settle anywhere it jumps from one stone to another as the light flickers across it and of course the snake holding its own tail is an auroribus which is a, a simple and ancient egyptian um, classic symbol of never-ending love it's of eternity it's a circle that's not broken and this was given by um, alice keppel who of course was the mistress of edward the seventh to the king as an expression of her love for him so then we have to go to the sad part revolution and the end of the workshop. Yeah. Well, Fabergé, of course, was on the completely wrong side of history. Um, you know, time and events raced past him at a, at a rate which was just sort of, you know, he could never survive. And so in Russia, the war started. And of course, you know, that the war is a very interesting time, I think, for all jewellers. And uh, when you look at wars, it's a very, I think, you know, maybe somebody should write a book about war and jewellery because there, there are many factors to this. You know, some jewellers thrive during wars because you're seen as a place, you know, of, of value, of portable wealth. And, you know, people often, if, you know, somebody's invading, they'd rather give their money to a jeweller and buy a big diamond than they would give it to the invaders. And so it's a fascinating thing. But in Russia, there was a slightly different set of events that occurred because Fabergé's ability to produce metals to incredible or work metals to incredibly fine tolerances translated perfectly to creating the munitions for the war effort so Fabergé still worked in jewelry was still producing objects but a larger part of his business migrated towards serving the war effort um, to a degree they produced copper and brass pots and pans but they were more souvenir elements but Beyond that souvenir war element, they were actually producing parts for hand grenades and shells. So they existed for a while, but then of course when the Bolsheviks came along, 
Fabergé's works were an anathema to them. They're the despised objects of the despised class. They had no cultural, political value whatsoever. And so the business just dwindled until it finally closed in 1918. And the Soviets confiscated everything and it came to an end. Fabergé himself and the members of the family, Fabergé was, you know, he could not have survived in Russia. He was rich, he was powerful, he was successful. But then even worse, you know, he was a close associate of the Tsar and the imperial family. So Fabergé, of course, recognised this and fled as a refugee, which, you know, has sort of such echoes today. As a refugee, he was pushed across Europe until he eventually found himself in Lausanne, in Switzerland, where he died in 1920. And Eugene, he was an old man by this stage, and I think, you know, life had been incredibly difficult, and his death was perhaps, perhaps timely at this point. But one of the most sort of poignant elements of of this passing is is that um, Eugene Fabergé, his son, in a series of letters which we cover in the exhibition, describes just how broken-hearted he was, that he lived for his work, and that when his work and his life's work had been destroyed, he just felt empty, like a sort of shell. And we do bring out that sad element of the story because we have to. This is how it came to an end. If we had the glory in the beginning, we must show the end as well. So there's quite a sombre moment as the penultimate part of the exhibition where we enter into this wartime and the eventual um, demise of Fabergé. Of course, in Russia, closing in 1918, the London branch closed in 1917, um, because again, here in London, Fabergé was frivolous, it was whimsy, it was folly, it was the thing you did when you were in love and you were wanting to sort of enjoy yourself and give something to somebody for pleasure. Um, but of course when war came along, you know, those pleasures became sort of inappropriate indulgences and business you know, shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. The business in Russia was um, contemporaneously suffering immensely and so the branch closed in London in 1917. And did the, the Bolsheviks broke down the remaining jewellery and dug out the oh, stones? absolutely, and... immediately afterwards. Mm. Um, and this goes back to the point, um, so yes, for the Bolsheviks, anything 20th century in effect had no, no cultural value. The only value it had was the intrinsic value for which they could raise foreign currency to fund their industrialization programme. So great confiscations, um, you know, spreading across all areas of society, the imperial family, the aristocracy, you know, then the middle classes, the church, the army, all of their treasures were confiscated. The earlier ones were deemed to perhaps have historical importance and were kept, but the later ones, 19th and 20th century, the first idea surrounding them was break them up, destroy them. And so the swathes of gemstones, and you see photographs of it, the most sort of, they're, they're terrible, but they are quite intriguing photographs of these gentlemen in St. Petersburg in the post-revolutionary period with piles of diamonds about a foot high on a table, and they're breaking them out of Fabergé's jewellery and everybody else's jewellery that's been confiscated. So yes, we cover that in the exhibition as well, but going back to the earlier point, about um, the lack of Fabergé jewellery existing now. It isn't that Fabergé didn't produce the jewellery, they did, it's that it doesn't survive because all of that that was in Russia, the prime home um, of Fabergé, was destroyed. And so very little of these magnificent tiaras or necklaces. So if you go to a Cartier exhibition, 
there's a corsage ornament, you know, two feet long and a foot wide, you know, absolutely dripping in diamonds. And there are tiaras, rows of them, you know, the most exquisitely produced objects. But if you saw one Fabergé necklace, you'd be incredibly lucky. But it's not that they didn't make them, it's that they don't survive. Mm. And what's unusual in this exhibition is that you have tried to recreate the feeling of the Fabergé workshop. And as they fled and left, don't you have the sweepings from one of the grandmasters from we his do, desk? We do, which these belong to Elevi Receiver, the, the great um, Fabergé dealers in New York. And they have a, an odd assortment of objects. You know, they're fragments, they're little elements, they're half-made things, they're damaged things, they're gemstones. And we, we can't be absolutely sure, but these are... These belong to Henrik Wigstrom, Fabergé's last chief workmaster, who himself fled Russia at the time of the revolution to return to Finland, which was his homeland. And among his possessions is this little disparate and really quite odd group of objects. And the idea and the story that's attached to them is that this is what he sweeped off his desk as he was leaving the branch to go into exile and leaving Russia. These were the things, the sweepings from his desk. And we have those in the exhibition um, as well as to show to show that story that, um, you know, well, one, that Fabergé came to this end and that there was, well, there was chaos. I was about to sort of hesitate to describe it as chaos, but it was chaos. Revolution is chaos. Revolution <laughs> is chaos. And people are fleeing for their lives. You know, there's a, a, a sort of restructuring. There's a new understanding. There are threats everywhere. And, you know, Fabergé had to, Fabergé as a business and Fabergé himself and Wigstrom and, his empo- and the employees had to find their way through that. Those magnificent eggs, those 50 yeah. magnificent eggs. How many do you have in the exhibition? Well, I'm not going to say now, but it will hopefully be a significant number. I can't, um, one of the, there's a wonderful sort of saying, which I mean is the theatre one, is it'll be all right on the night. And I think it will be all right on the night, but even at this late stage, we are now only sort of weeks away from the exhibition. There are the final arrangements to be made. Um, but what I can say is that there will be many Easter eggs which have never been seen in Britain before. And, and that was one of my choices. Getting Easter eggs is incredibly difficult. I actually felt as though I was laying them at certain stages. It's just, it's such, they are so precious to the institutions that have them that to just extract one is, is, is difficult. But when I was extracting them for the exhibition, what I was trying to do was to bring those that had not been seen before to the Victoria and Albert Museum. And we have three from the Kremlin that have never been seen um, in Britain ever before. And you've got three from the Queen's yes, collection. Yes, we have three from the Queen's collection. So you now that we have six. Um, <laughs> but there, there will be more. Um, but we have three from Her Majesty, yes. And so we're, again, deeply honoured to have those. And as you say, the extraordinary thing is people can buy Fabergé today, but to have this core collection in your exhibition that was bought pre-revolution and handed down the legacy of that through a family is really extraordinary. Oh, it is, yeah, to have that. But the main body of the exhibition, which is the story of Fabergé in London, London was also, in the Edwardian era, a huge destination for Russians. And so we look at London now, in the late 20th and early 21st century, as being Moscow on Thames, but... London was Moscow on Thames, or St. Petersburg on Thames, in 1910, just as much as it is now. 
the Americans, there was a huge, again, influx of Americans. And the Americans, you could almost compare to the Russians now. They were these strange creatures with lots of money, viewed as maybe slightly gauche, but coming over and taking, you know, the, the grandest houses, you know, having the greatest parties, you know, living the most wonderful lives. And the Americans were those people in 1910 in London, and there was a huge American contingent of customers. And so, and then there's the sort of the, the stalwart English aristocratic and gentry who were customers. And then there were people like Leopold de Rothschild and Mrs. Greville, of course, the great Cartier patron, and Sir Ernst Castle, who were new money. And they were um, frequenting Fabergé too. So we explore these different social groups um, that were the customers. And if you weren't round the exhibition, Kieran, at the end, and you were able to take away a piece, well, which one would it be? I don't know. I don't know. Somebody asked me the other day about my favourite Easter egg, and I think it's sort of very dangerous to choose one over another. Um, one of the other things I've sort of said is that it's like having sort of 200 affairs simultaneously. So if I'm having, let's say, 15 affairs or or maybe less uh, with Easter egg owners, I don't say that, you know, you're my greatest Easter egg and you're my not. Um, I don't know, the tiara would be, the aquamarine and diamond tiara would be a really serious contender. And I think bizarrely, and I think this is just purely for my own sort of peculiarity, I maybe want one of Fabergé's grenades. Because it's so unusual. Because it's so unusual. Just the idea of this great goldsmith who was at the beck and call of emperors and princesses and titans of the world, um, he also produced a hand grenade. And so just, uh, you know, I feel just said someone, oh, look, Fabergé made this. So I'd maybe take the hand grenade. I think I'll take a flower study, <laughs> and I think it might be the buttercup and um, the oats on Tremblant. Yeah, I think, yeah, I probably financially made a terrible decision there. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, this is going to be the greatest collection of Fabergé for people to actually see this work and appreciate it in the flesh, isn't it? I think it's, well, I, I dare say it's going to be the greatest, but I think... It's been an awfully long time since there's been a Fabergé exhibition in Britain. And I think the great thing about this exhibition, and which I'm hoping the audience and the visitors will take from it, is, is that it will present an understanding of the business which they would not necessarily have had before they came. And I think that's part of the V&A's um, identity. And it was sort of explained to me very early on in the process that when somebody enters the exhibition, they will know who Fabergé is because of the Easter eggs. Everybody does. If we walked out of here into the street and asked anybody, they would know a Fabergé Easter egg. But also, we have to say quickly that his name over the years has been bastardised, hasn't it? In, yeah. in soaps, in fragrances, oh. in all these yeah, things. absolutely. And it's... you want people to understand what he is really yeah. what is that well point? i think for again i think for you know that's a, quite a complex sort of issue but i think for me fabergé came to an end in 1918 you know carl fabergé died in 1920 anything after that moment is not fabergé you know fabergé is a product of the creativity of him of the people he assembled and the clientele that he served when that clientele goes and those people go it disappears. There's no evolution because it ended. It came to an utter and horrific car crash politically and culturally in 1918. Anything beyond that isn't Fabergé. So you know, I think that's um, one point. But what we are trying to do in the exhibition is talking about the story of Carl Fabergé himself. Is, is that 
when they come in, they will know of the Easter eggs, but by the time they leave, they will have understood Fabergé's origins, the genesis of the business, the structure of the workshops, the international appeal of the of of his work, his existence in London, the idea which we've got into of, of how tragically it came to an end. And then at the very last moment of the exhibition is going to be the celebration of the legacy via the Easter eggs. And so people will get to the Easter eggs and the Easter egg story pretty you know, soon. But by the time they get there, they will hopefully have sort of you know, imbued, we've imbued in them a greater understanding of Habaché's works. Thank you for allowing us to have a greater understanding today, Kieran. Thank you so much for your time and your vast knowledge of the man and his work. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Absolute pleasure, Carol. It's a joy talking to you about it. Thank you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes of If Jules Could Talk, please go to the website, carolwalton.com slash podcasts. And if you liked it, please share it any way you can. And subscribe to the podcast feed on any of the usual platforms where you find your podcasts and we'd love a rating and a comment. And we'll be here again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget. And as it's the season to sparkle, I thought we'd talk about Marilyn Monroe and diamonds. After all, few cinematic performances have stood the test of time like the jewel-laden Marilyn Monroe singing Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend in Howard Hawke's film Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. I'll be joined by the American film critic, author and host of the podcast You Must Remember This, Karina Longworth. We'll be dissecting the movie and its lasting impact. So please join us then. Goodbye. If Jules Could Talk with Carol Walton is produced by Natasha Cowan. Music and editing by Tim Thornton. Graphics by Scott Bentley. Illustration by Geordie Labanda. And you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton.